Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. If you're curious about cannabis, you're really going to like this episode. Our guest is Hunter Land, Director of Cannabinoid Research at Canopy Growth Corporation. Earlier in his career, he worked closely with Dr. Ethan Russo, one of the pioneers of cannabinoid science. Hunter was also intimately involved with GW Pharmaceuticals in bringing to market Epidiolex, the first and only FDA-approved CBD for Dravet syndrome and pediatric epilepsy. So today we discuss the importance of product testing, how to find quality CBD in today's market, how to properly dose CBD, absorption of tinctures versus capsules, isolates and full spectrum formulations, the emergence of so-called minor cannabinoids and more. So Hunter's a real scientist who's making things happen in the cannabis space and we're really glad to have him on the show. This podcast, my website, Cannaboom with a K.com, and my weekly newsletter, Five Boom Friday, are all focused on how cannabis and CBD can help you achieve better wellness. You can hear us at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your other favorite podcast player. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review and help us expand our reach. Thanks to our producer, Danny, in Milwaukee. Enjoy the show. Cannabis is booming, and Cannaboom is on it. Welcome to the Cannaboom Podcast, where we interview experts on the changing story of humans, health, and hemp. From San Diego, here's your host, Tom Stacy. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, we have Hunter Land, Director of Cannab- Cannabinoid Research at Canopy Growth Corporation. Hi, Hunter. How are you? Great, Tom. How are you? Very good, thanks. I understand you're still stuck down in Nicaragua. I am indeed. It's been almost six months now, so hopefully flights to return home soon. So I take it that was going to be a brief vacation and it got extended. Yeah, a brief vacation, some volunteer work uh, with a physician down here in the epilepsy space, and now it's been an extended almost residence at this point. I guess there are worse places to be. I mean, there's good surf there, right? Fantastic surf, great people met a lot of new friends. And uh, so I certainly can't complain, especially amidst uh, COVID. Uh, There's not a better place to self-contain. You have an interesting background. You worked with Dr. Ethan Russo, one of the real pioneers in cannabinoid science. And you were also instrumental in rolling out Epidiolex. That's correct. Um, I've been in the research space about 15 years. And I guess about seven or eight years ago, I had the luxury of working very closely with Dr. Russo, who ultimately is um, certainly one of my uh, most esteemed mentors, although I've had several other great mentors, but uh, Ethan's a great guy, uh, incredibly knowledgeable, and his contributions to the world of cannabinoid science and epilepsy and MS and pain have been tremendous. I'm very pleased to have had an opportunity to work with him. And your current role, you're doing similar things? Similar things, expanding upon a good bit of what Ethan had done and theorized, uh, as well as um, a lot of other brilliant scientists in the space. So uh, it's been a great opportunity at Canopy, and uh, it was a great opportunity uh, previously to work in the cannabinoid space. And then for our listeners who who may not be familiar, Epidiolex is really the only uh, approved cannabis pharmaceutical. Is that the right way to put it? More or less. I think there's some minutiae around that. Um, There are other cannabinoids that are approved in the U.S. and elsewhere. So Marinol being synthetic, uh, Sesame is a THC analog, and Sativex, which is another GW Pharma product, is made from two different plants. It's a whole plant extract um, of a high THC chemovore and a high CBD chemovore. Uh, that's combined, but that's not approved in the U.S. 
And Epidiolex is approved for epilepsy? Specific types of epilepsy. It's usually in the class of refractory pediatric epilepsy. There are two rare forms uh, in Epidiolex's case. It's um, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and Dravet syndrome. Well, it must have been interesting to be on the team to bring that to market and, and to help pediatric patients um, actually live better and stay alive. Yeah, it was um, incredibly rewarding. The, the patient groups and the support um, that they provided during the research process, as well as really getting to understand the condition, as well as what the parents experience on a daily basis. Um, it couldn't have been more moving. And I think there are a lot of other things that we can do in the cannabinoid space to, to help so many patients with unmet medical needs. And it sounds like you're still involved in the fact that you were down in Nicaragua working with doing some volunteer work on, on epilepsy. Yes, it's a near and dear um, to my heart, certainly, um, you know, refractory epilepsies as well as autism spectrum disorders, uh, many other neurological disorders, I think uh, we have opportunity in the cannabinoid space to potentially treat, certainly research, um, but this one uh, really hit home uh, for me personally, and um, I'm still heavily connected to the, those groups and that patient population. My own story, I had a brother who passed away from complications around epilepsy in the early 90s, you know, before we knew any of this. So it, it motivates me to help get the story out. And so I'm so glad to have you on the show to talk about that and, and the stuff you're doing now. I think we want to maybe pivot to CBD and, and what you guys are doing. And part of what I'm doing with my listenership is trying to bring good information. And there's still a lot of rampant misinformation around CBD out there. How can we find our way in in this environment? Oh, it's it's such a difficult process right now. Um, you know, the lack of peer review to some uh, articles and publications um, is extensive. And even when you have peer review, if it's not experts in the space, uh, things are easily overlooked. So, you, you know, we've been looking at cannabinoids for some time. And as the research has progressed, we learned that some information that we thought was accurate has now been superseded by new information. Uh, that's not necessarily unique to cannabinoids, especially with CBD, but um, to the extent of false or misleading information, I can't really find a parallel. So it's a huge undertaking. Um, I think, um, you know, making sure you have right references, I actually read a paper this morning that was talking about CBD supporting the gut and preventing COVID um, and actually wasn't referenced at all. It was basically an opinion piece and it didn't really have any scientific rigor behind it. So uh, usually the questions I ask are how and why, and that seems to be helpful for me to spot something that's theoretically theoretical, misleading, or inaccurate, or something that has uh, a lot of potential. I find myself kind of in between two worlds where there's a lot of frustration and impatience on the part of the whole cannabis enthusiast uh, community where we know people have used this plant-based substance for tens of thousands of years. No one's ever died from it. There was a hundred years of propaganda against it. Uh, we know that it does help with anxiety and insomnia and things like that. But on the other hand, from your perspective in the, the medical profession, it can take 10 years and a billion dollars to bring a drug to market. The first thing is do no harm, and you have to jump through these hoops to prove 
if it's going to be a pharmaceutical, it, there's a lot of things that have to happen along the way, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the comment, I agree that I think cannabinoids are largely safe, especially CBD for the most part. But some of the important things that we're learning is the doses that we're now exposing humans to, um, in some cases, are far higher than have been done in the past. So for example, in some of the acute dosing studies with humans, we've given 6,000 milligrams of CBD. Uh, that is really, really high, um, especially when you consider typical users are in the 25 to 50 milligram range, sometimes 100 milligrams. So I think from that perspective, it gives us a sense of safety, uh, but still not knowing at what point this could be toxic or for what patient population uh, there could be risk, you know, around drug-drug interactions. So I think there's additional work, even though I think broadly it's it's a very safe molecule. Um, that doesn't mean it's safe for everybody at any given dose. Uh, for example, even water at very high doses can be toxic. So um, everything can be toxic. Uh, I think having good science to support where it is and where it isn't toxic and what patients or individuals should use it for supportive health-related concerns is, is something where we can come in as scientists and do the research and, and get the details of how it should and shouldn't be used. There's ongoing research and, and lab work. How, from a consumer perspective, can we protect ourselves? Where can we find reliable information? Well, I like, um, I like to look at more of the recent articles from PubMed and uh, Google Scholars. I think that they're um, you know, reputable. Anytime you can look at a peer-reviewed journal, um, that uh, is certainly uh, an area uh, that you can get more legitimate data. So some of the you know, really biased things that go out that aren't peer-reviewed, I think, is a question. Um, but broadly, I think it's really difficult to find, you know, for the average consumer that doesn't want to spend hours and hours on end uh, reading a journal, it's, um, it's, it's difficult. And then, you know, if you go to, let's say, your local bud tender, uh, maybe they are educated. Um, there's not, you know, a standard level of education there. Um, many physicians have some education. Many don't. Um, uh, there was a recent uh, publication around uh, physician knowledge, and um, it was very mixed, um, it, along with nurses and pharmacists. So I would say broadly right now, even though we've been studying this for an extensive period of, of time, uh, most physicians and nurses and pharmacists aren't studying this, and uh, there's a lot of outdated information. So it's a, it's a, difficult, it's a difficult thing to achieve, Tom. You know, the FDA isn't super speedy on this. So one thing I've done is refer my readers and listeners to CBD products that have been certified by the U.S. Hemp Authority. And they kind of take food grade standards, FDA standards around good manufacturing processes and apply those to the CBD process. Do you think that's a good idea? Absolutely. I think both consumers and companies should insist upon uh, having a quality standard. This is something that I don't think has been done broadly. I think certain groups are trying to achieve this, but it's not something that's either well-known or well-accepted. Um, I think we need to use uh, standardized labs, and I think you know either the government or the consumers I, obviously the government's taking its time right now but you know do we know what levels of pesticides should or could be used in cannabis do we know what level of of heavy metals are safe 
Uh, Tom, I know you're aware, but the cannabis plant is what we call a phytoremediator. Uh, it soaks up heavy metals from the soil uh, as well as other toxins, and these accumulate and can get concentrated in the extraction and formulation process. So I think it's of the utmost importance to uh, really understand what exactly is in that bottle. And, um, and to do that, we need kind of a unifying standards across industry. And I, I hope that patients will, or patients or consumers, uh, purchasers, customers will insist upon um, having these standards. There are instances where I think recently in Florida, a CBD line was recalled for lead contamination. There is bad CBD out there that you have to keep away from. Right. I, and, you know, it's not necessarily the molecule. The, the molecule should be the same. It's what humans do to it or are willing to do it, do to it or what happens in the process of formulation. So uh, without a doubt, there are concerns. I, I know there have been um, some reports of, you know, pesticides being at 200 times the level allowed on an apple. And in some cases, this is being given to children or elderly with uh, complicated health problems. So um, without these standards and not knowing what to look for, I think there is a consumer risk. Well, and that's where you're, I mean, part scientist, but you also have to be concerned about the regulatory pathway and the fact that, okay, we have all, every state right now has its own set of standards, but there's no federal standard, right? Right. I mean, only from legality of, of what's considered hemp and what's not considered hemp, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, what you're testing for. Most, most of the time, the FDA or some government entity will put requirements. They'll say, you know, these are the pesticides that can be used. This is how much lead, for example, is allowed in water. And uh, there's none of that here. Uh, and there are other, you know, akin to other industries like alcohol, if you go into the local store to purchase some alcohol, you, you know which, what's on the label is what you're getting uh, in terms of alcohol, and you generally think it's free of other contaminants. Um, most people aren't purchasing moonshine uh, to these days, but uh, you know part of this industry still falls into uh, that sort of situation where uh, we're purchasing unknown and taking risk. And I think you know, one of my big concerns is uh, akin to the, um, the, vape, the vape issue uh, that happened a couple months ago with the, it was a vitamin E acetate additive that was being included in some of these THC vape products uh, sold on the state level. And it was calling, causing some of these mysterious lung problems. At first, there was concern with THC and vaping, uh, and later they found it was something else altogether. Um, I worry about long-term use of some products that are unregulated and what this means. You know, if you're taking high concentrated pesticides for five years or certain metals, um, you know, are they going to say CBD caused this, but it's actually another component uh, and therefore limiting either further research or helping other people? Right. I mean, a lot of people have forgotten about that vaping crisis, but yeah, all of a sudden, thousands of people were coming down. Well, probably not all of a sudden, but it took 10 years to realize that uh, people were getting seriously ill and there were fatalities around that. It wasn't the, the CBD or the THC molecules. It was the carrier liquids that were being aerosolized and not even a true vapor, but, but an aerosol that people were inhaling that was problematic. Right. Absolutely. And certainly dangerous. And we see, you know, I know in North Carolina, 50 people went to the hospital for um, a CBD product, but actually it included a rather dangerous synthetic cannabinoid. 
it was, uh, again, not regulated and a lot of people got sick. So uh, this happens and that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's, it's testing and then also labeling. The label has to accurately reflect what's in the bottle or, or the product. Last week, I read about the FDA approaching several CBD companies where the amount of CBD was, I think 50% of the time, it was kind of wildly off. It was much less or even more than was on the label. That's a big problem. Yeah, it's been really been all over the place. Um, so uh, knowing what you're getting is, uh, is I think, a, a great strategy for all of us. And hopefully we can all push for that. So assuming we can trust the label, what can we say about daily dosages and what's recommended? Are you guys making headway on, on that? Yeah, the dosing around cannabinoids is really interesting. I think um, you see a lot of push and I see guides on the internet for, you know, how do you dose our product? Um, I think the general theme, and it's used often in epilepsy, but kind of more broadly, is uh, start low and go slow because... Um, there are some important nuances with CBD specifically. Uh, so we know there's a food effect. So if you take CBD with high fat food, you get three to five fold exposure. It's literally like taking three to five times as much CBD in a lot of individuals. So if I tell you to take 100 milligrams and you take it with, let's say, pizza or peanut butter, then you may get you know, three to five times that amount. So even giving a, a arbitrary dosing guideline uh, changes with something as simple as food or whether it's an empty stomach. Uh, secondly, there have been some reports of what we would call like an inverted U dose response, where doses towards the lower side may show effect and, uh, and then at the higher side may actually not show effect for certain conditions. I think that's something that needs to be further investigated, but it's certainly interesting that you can overdo something and kind of miss, miss your target. Um, so if you, if you titrate slowly to what you're trying to achieve, then I think you can um, better uh, elucidate um, what, what dose is needed. I think it's going to be very difficult to say, take 10 milligrams for sleep, 50 milligrams for anxiety, and 100 milligrams for some other condition. I'm not sure we'll ever get there. And uh, additionally, depending on what type of uh, formulation. So we know oil vehicles um, make CBD more available or bioavailable. And, um, you know, so some of these other things like capsules or CBD water or what happens when you put it in a gummy or a food is going to be different. So essentially, 10 milligrams is not 10 milligrams is not 10 milligrams. That's why you see so many tinctures with MCT oil or, or coconut oil. There's also the the fact that everyone's got different genetics too, and maybe you have a different uptake than than I do to the same dosage. Yeah, I would actually uh, say wildly different. I was I thought about not going into that much detail, but there in your liver, your liver metabolizes CBD. Um, there's a couple enzymes um, called cytochrome P450s. One's 2C19 and the other's 3A4. And some people have a lot of these enzymes and some people have less. Uh, so you could be an ultra-fast metabolizer. And remember, this is just for a drug. This isn't, am I active or am I inactive? You could be a, a you know running Ironmans, but be a slow metabolizer or, 
or the opposite. So it's not like you can say, hey, I'm an active person. I'm going to uh, metabolize this really quickly, or I'm going to get these huge, huge spikes of CBD uh, in my blood. So um, again, difficult based on genetics, food effect, and the variety of formulations. Um, it's very difficult uh, to determine what the dose should be for a specific condition and a specific formulation. Uh, that's why, you know, most uh, scientists would say, you know, titrate to effect uh, rather than just picking a dose. Is that true of a lot of drugs? I mean, it's not specifically CBD. No, it's true to other drugs. I think um, there are some other particular um, factors with cannabinoids, not just CBD, but also THC that causes uh, it to affect uh, people differently. So this does happen in other drugs, but I don't, for the most part, I wouldn't say to the degree, there are always some exceptions, but to the degree uh, with CBD. Uh, also the therapeutic window may be different. Again, we don't know, but generally speaking, if you were to have a headache, uh, you could take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen and it's probably broadly, it's probably going to help your headache. Uh, we don't have that kind of information and it seems like it's more variable with CBD. You mentioned test and learn, and that's something I mentioned frequently that slow and low and, and uh, see what you learn. You can have your DNA analyzed. Is that recommended? You could. Uh, some of these tests are about $400. So you could, I think, generally speaking, uh, if you have the extra money and you want to know, um, you can look at your enzymes and see if you're an ultra fast or ultra slow metabolizer. Um, and uh, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I don't know that it's necessary um, if you're dosing to effect, but you certainly could look at that. I think it's good information to have. Um, so if you speak to your pharmacist and doctor and you know that you're an ultra fast or ultra slow metabolizer with specific enzymes, then they may treat your drug, uh, whatever they prescribe you or whatever is utilized differently. It sounds like it'll still be somewhat inexact and you're still going to need to kind of titrate and, and test and learn. You still don't know about that formulation. And if you're changing formulations and you're changing your diet, um, again, just more variables to make it a little bit more difficult to determine the dose. With cannabis, we even talk about set and setting, which is really hard to define, but it can affect your experience. Absolutely. So how about like smoking and vaping where you're bypassing the liver and going straight into the bloodstream? How do you dose for that? Yeah, so THC is easier, actually, you know, in this respect. And I think that's one reason that it's been broadly smoked or inhaled for, for uh, decades, if not millennia, um, because you kind of can dose to effect. Uh, the, the peak time is about five minutes to effect, five to 15 minutes, depending on individual. So literally you can self-titrate in the moment. Um, CBD, because it's uh, non-intoxicating, I, I stay away from non-psychoactive uh, because it's clearly having an effect on your brain. But you may not get a, a, a certain feeling. Now, perhaps in a, a space like anxiety, if you had some anxiety and this was something you were attempting to do, then you probably could get some relatively immediate feedback. I think around, um, there's again, more nuances here because when you ingest CBD, it produces a, a much higher ratio of the active metabolite 7-hydroxy CBD. 
which actually has a little bit different effect. Um, and then some models shows like the epilepsy models actually shows greater potency uh, and greater effects than CBD alone. So inhaling it is going to change how much is exposed to your brain immediately, uh, how quickly that happens, because CBD may take four to six hours to get to a peak. Um, and also you're not getting as much as that active metabolite. So these aren't really interchangeable. You can't um, say, well, I'm going to switch over to vaping and I know my CBD you know, oral dose and that somehow is going to correlate to a vaping dose. It, uh, it, it again, is, is relatively confusing. Right. I mean, like people have learned with cannabis, an edible is going to take longer to take effect and it's going to affect you longer and it may be more intense. So some of those things might be true with CBD, I hear you saying? Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think a lot of individuals in the THC space learn the hard way where they eat something and then they wait 10 or 15 minutes and they keep eating their chocolate or their brownies. And then all of a sudden it kicks in two to three hours later um, and they're you know, on the biphasic end of, of paranoia and nausea. Um, with CBD, you, you wouldn't expect those types of effects um, by titrating like that or just generally not expected with CBD. But certainly the length of time it stays in your system is, is much different. It's more of a kind of a, a slow hump uh, rather than this big mountain that you would get from inhaled. So uh, time to onset inhaled is shorter, but also time of duration is much shorter. I guess the classic example that many people might remember was the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd, who <laughs> early on in Colorado's legalization, she went to Denver and, and ate, like you said, maybe too much of a chocolate bar. And I don't know if she crawled into the closet. She was, I think she wrote that she was <laughs> convinced she was going to die. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fortunately, um, most of us have learned low and slow is the way to go. So definitely that's words to live by. How about liposomes? I see a lot of CBD, you know, water soluble and stuff. D does that make a difference? Well, I can tell you that um, there's some big differences in what container you put it in <laughs> because <laughs> some of these uh, CBD waters and these other products, when put in these plastic containers, uh, you know, they would take a measurable amount of let's say 10 milligrams of CBD and put it in a plastic bottle and pour the water out and there'd be no detectable CBD. It's so lipophilic. It's just this fat sticky molecule. It sticks to the plastic. So, you know, there's all types of technologies that they're trying to produce uh, to make this fat soluble compound uh, water soluble. There's, uh, you know, micro encapsulation, there's nanotechnologies, there's uh, liposomal technologies. There's a bunch of different ways that they're trying to emulsify uh, CBD. But the, the interesting thing is a lot of these companies are touting this type of technology, but um, I've yet to see much data on actually putting it in humans. So it's I'm sure you're familiar with some of these outrageous claims uh, that you see kind of abroad the, uh, across the board with some of these kind of, I would say, bad actors in the, the cannabis and cannabinoid CBD space. But uh, just because it works like this for another drug or you can put it in this formulation doesn't mean it's actually going to work that way. So you can be a guinea pig and test and see if it helps you if you feel like you're getting help from it, um, or you could go for something that's more 
uh, tried and true. So we know the oil formulations or oil gel caps taken with food uh, are absorbed. Um, and we also know that if you just take like a crystalline, highly concentrated product um, without food, you get very, very little um, exposure. So a crystalline, maybe like an isolate without food, you're saying is you're not going to get much uptake? Yeah. And it, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be an isolate. I don't want to say anything negative about isolates, um, but uh, usually kind of across the board, the more concentrated and less lipids present, uh, the less bioavailability, so the less absorption. So certainly if you just take white CBD powder, uh, then you're not going to get the same exposure that you will with a, with a lipid. Something about sublingual, is there an advantage to holding it under your tongue for, say, two minutes? Or should you be concerned with not swallowing it as fast as you can and letting it sit there and absorb? Is that advantageous? So, you know, when we've done preclinical testing, we take uh, tissue akin to the oral mucosal, and um, we actually don't see... Uh, much of any permeation. Usually what we think happens uh, is it just drains down your throat and uh, is absorbed in the GI tract, just like if you swallowed it. You could get some absorption maybe in the throat, but um, you know the oral mucosal is a, a pretty strong barrier to absorption of certain things. And plus, like CBD doesn't really have a reason to kind of jump past this lipid bilator to get into the bloodstream. Um, it may happen. I haven't seen any data to support that. Uh, and secondly, they have done studies of uh, a oral mucosal product versus uh, like a soft gel. And, um, you know, when you look at what's in the blood, you see basically the same levels. So if you are getting this much higher exposure, it's not been on any, there's not any science to support that. Um, I would love to you know, to see some science or a technology that could do that. And there very well may be technologies that can do that, but I haven't seen where it's been proven. So you're, you're saying a tincture under the tongue is maybe no better than a capsule, given that, okay, there's some fat in that capsule to help absorb. So um, the tincture would imply that there's ethanol present, um, or at least for me. And, um, you know, there's again, there's not a lot of data uh, around you know a CBD ethanol solution and how well it gets past the the oral mucosal, um, but um, certainly if you're taking a CBD oil and holding it under your tongue, I don't think there's going to be much better absorption than if it just uh, goes through the normal GI tract. Again, you know the science would suggest that it's not passing through that area. Now there. There are neurotransmitters in your mouth. Um, there are trip receptors, and we know CBD is active at trip receptors. So there could be local effects, and those could have sort of like a systemic effect. Um, but again, this is all just theoretical and kind of adds a layer of complexity on you know how to use CBD and similar products. We mentioned isolates. Can we get back to that and? I think people understand that that's the, the molecule by itself. Full spectrum has a trace amount, 0.03% of THC that, that kicks in the entourage effect. And then broad spectrum is uh, all the other cannabinoids minus THC, or at least some other cannabinoids minus THC. Some of the retailers are taking a stance on that. Do you have any concerns around isolate versus full spectrum, pros and cons? So, yeah, so, well, I think, you know, 
I think they should all be treated differently. And the interesting thing to me is that we've come up with these classifications, full spectrum, broad spectrum, and isolate. So the isolate makes sense because it's single molecule. But if, if you say, you know, I want a broad spectrum, it's like CBD plus this other stuff. And, you know, there can be up to 545 bioactive compounds found in cannabis and in different um, quantities. So it's kind of like this mystery soup of things. And broad spectrum is certainly not broad spectrum compared between plants and even different batches. So, you know, I think some of the research I'm working on is actually uh, focusing on which specific terpenes have which specific actions, uh, some of the flavonoids with or without combinations of cannabinoids, be it major or minor. I think we can do this scientifically and target certain diseases with this. So, you know, we do know that uh, there's been some research on CBD alone. Um, I think it's just one fibromyalgia paper. Uh, CBD alone versus THC plus CBD plus THC alone. And the combination of about one-to-one, if I recall correctly, was more effective than both just THC and CBD. Um, But also you have to mitigate some other problems with THC. It can cause intoxication. Some people may be hypersensitive. And again, that's a lot more THC uh, than than, THC. you know, taking it in something that's full or broad spectrum. So I think, you know, we can be, scientifically, we can elucidate what the specific compounds are that have certain activities and where they actually kind of have a non-tourage. So, for example, some compounds like alpha-pinene, which is a terpene, um, can be alerting. Uh, they may help with memory. And then you see things like myrcene that can be sedating. So if you're taking a formulation that has those terpenes, then it's kind of, they're, kind of, they're counteracting one another. This is like, uh, you know, maybe taking an amphetamine with an Ambien. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So when we make statements like, oh, broad spectrum or full spectrum is better than isolate, um, what are those compounds? And, um, you know, is that right for that individual person? Uh, the second thing I'll say is most of the, the scientific research, um, you know, where we had randomized controlled, uh, you know, a patient population that was on placebo where we can compare, uh, those are on isolated compounds. So we know without a doubt that um, CBD, isolated CBD works for epilepsy. There's more data in pediatric epilepsy with isolated CBD than anything else. Um, everything else is more or less anecdotal. Um, so, you know, why I think there's value there, uh, it would be interesting to do a comparative study. And that's really how we answer that question is, can we take two groups and give them an isolate versus a broad spectrum and cross them over and see if, uh, and see if one does better than the other? And to, to date, that really hasn't been done. The entourage effect is an interesting idea. Um, a lot of people say, hey, this is a plant, it's a plant-based medicine, and, and it, that makes it wonderful. But do you do something different in the, in the lab if you see that there are two terpenes that might, have, might be canceling each other out and don't make sense? Can you, do you pull one out? Do you try to amplify one over the other? Yes, you can certainly pull one out or, or add it to the other. And I think, you know, a lot of Ethan's research was around looking at certain chemovores that express certain 
types of terpenes or terpenoids in ratios with certain cannabinoids to treat a specific ailment. It's, um, I think it's gone to the place where you need all this other stuff. We don't know what it is and it doesn't matter and it's uncontrolled and inaccurate and bounces all over the place, but you need that stuff for CBD to work. And I don't think that was ever the intention. I think the intention's more around optimization for a specific case. And I think it can be optimized either by growing practices uh, or by adding additional components in. Uh, Secondly, you know, a lot of the research has been, some of this has been on inhalation. So we know that even small amounts of inhaled terpenes can have an effect. Uh, We see this with linalool, which is in um, lavender. Uh, So a lot of people use lavender for aromatherapy. It's a known relaxant. Um, and that's small amounts. But when you ingest lavender, um, how much is available, how much gets in the blood, and does that have the same effect? And uh, the answer from human trials is that actually the amount needed for ingestion is much higher. So if I'm giving you a broad spectrum product with you know, a half a milligram of five terpenes, and really you should be taking one with 60 milligrams of terpenes, is that is that as effective? Is that an optimized product? Or is that just, you know, a little sprinkle of something that may be helping a little bit? Uh, so again, you know, I'm uh, acutely interested in this. We know that in many cases, there are synergies and additive effects. And we also know there, there are these negative effects, this, uh, what I call entourage effect. Well, it's certainly a, a complex picture that emerges when once you start to kind of get beyond the, the tip of the iceberg. We sort of talk about the other cannabinoids and that's gotten more attention recently, the so-called minor cannabinoids, you know, CBG, CBN, all those other things. Are we going to see some of those making their way into products in a way that consumers will be, you know, educated and, and looking for them? Well, I hope we do it right. Um, I, I think it's been... It, to find the right place for some of these cannabinoids is not, it's not been as easy because clearly there's a lot more funding around THC and CBD. Uh, so a lot of these other minor cannabinoids have been understudied. Um, aside from CBG, most of these are hard to, to breed plants for. So you just don't get as much of these cannabinoids. So I, I do think at some point, um, there's going to be a new cannabinoid uh, or new formulations that are going to be much better uh, than what we have now. So I'm looking forward to the 2.0 cannabinoid products, especially those that are non-THC related cannabinoid products. There's so much going on here. Is this a more complicated sort of pathway than other pharmaceuticals or is this just kind of part of the, the science and the business? Yeah, I think it's much more complicated uh, because, you know, unlike, I won't say, I'll say most, I won't say all or even the majority, um, but uh, a lot of these other drugs are designed uh, for specific targets. So we know a condition uh, has an abnormality at this receptor, or we know that you have anxiety, so we're going to, to make a drug that, it, you know, mimics um molecules in your body that reduce anxiety. Uh, With cannabinoids, first, you know, the term cannabinoid or phytocannabinoid uh, itself is misleading. Um, And I say that because I would say most of these minor cannabinoids actually don't function through the endocannabinoid system. So when they were named, we didn't realize there were going to be 120 plus cannabinoids. We knew 
THC, CBN, CBD, and the acids, but we, uh, they're acid forms, but we didn't know about all the others. So, um, and we certainly, you know, CBD, for example, doesn't function at least primarily through the endocannabinoid system. It's got its own unique pharmacology. Um, and I think all of these have very unique pharmacologies. Uh, so even the term, I think it makes it difficult uh, to study these compounds. Secondly, you know, for instance, CBD has 65 known targets. Uh, most drugs don't have that. They have one or two, maybe three different places that they bind and how they function. When you have a molecule that does so much, um, you know, where it can be used and how it can be used and which dose it can be used at uh, gets increasingly complex. So I hear you saying there's a process of discovery that's ongoing, and a lot of times maybe there's a discrete goal you're going for in the development of a pharmaceutical, but in this instance, there's still so much to be learned. Right, absolutely. I mean, if you search for how CBD works through the academic space, there are new ways that CBD works discovered every single day. Um, and then that, you know, kind of clarifies where it could potentially be used. That's not typical uh, for most other drugs. And then if you add, so we were mentioned, we talked earlier about broad spectrum and full spectrum products, and then you add, so CBD itself works, you know, potentially through at least 65 different mechanisms. And then you start adding all these other things that may have as many or as close to as many targets, then what does that mean in, in, in the body? Um, and I think it's it gets increasingly complicated as you add different things into the mix. I've mentioned before that it sounds like it's a 3D matrix. I mean, there's so much going on. <laughs> it is. I feel like I'm in the matrix sometimes, just trying to, trying to figure out all this science. From your perspective, what question are you most interested in, in knowing the answer to in, say, five years? I mean, what, what's the biggest unknown that you would like to know? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough one. I think I've got several uh, that haunt my dreams at times. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, for me, I would, I'm really interested in a lot of the other cannabinoids and potential synergies. I would like to be able to optimize these effects and, and know what should be present and what shouldn't be present. Um, that's where that's, you know, there's some, some knowledge around how to use isolate and then there's um, the complexities and lack of unification in the industry around what broad and full spectrum are um, is, is increasingly complicated. I would like to get at least a baseline on what should be used how. Um, and, and additionally, I think uh, some of these other cannabinoids that are really understudied that uh, we're doing a lot of research on right now, um, I would like to find a home for them. You know, I'd like to, to find out how they could be used safely and what conditions and, and what patients they could help and what patients, you know, might be at risk or, or should avoid those products. Are you free to talk about what you're doing at Canopy Growth and wh where you guys are going? Any projects you can tell us about? I can speak to some broadly. I can't uh, share all the results. I, I mentioned earlier that we are looking closely at, at synergies uh, between compounds and a lot of effects. So, for example, that could be effects on pain or anxiety. Um, you know, a lot of these different models that we use to look at different compounds to see how they can be used. And I can tell you it's extensive. We're also looking at long-term toxicity, not just around CBD, but around other cannabinoids. Um, we are looking at dosing and we do a lot of safety work 
with all the products. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's, you know, there are quite a few projects ongoing now, and I suspect some of the more exciting ones will be reading out in the next uh, month or two. Wow. So we'll keep an eye out. There's a lot of supplement companies, and as we talked about, there's some fly-by-night stuff going on. You guys bring the the science and discipline of a pharmaceutical enterprise to this. Is that a good description? Maybe. I you know I like to think of myself as as well as most of my colleagues as kind of these objective scientists that are trying to 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 figure things out. So we certainly bring uh, the the scientific hat. Um, as far as um, having the same goals as a typical pharmaceutical company, I think we're a lot different. Different certainly, the culture is different. Any company that does cannabinoid research, you kind of have to take uh, part of that uh, industry hat off, uh, but still keep the the scientist hat on. So I think you know, as far as like quality control and quality of data and making sure things are safe, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, if if you're mentioning like a typical ph- pharmaceutical company. I would say we're probably far from that. It's hard to be the world's largest cannabis producer and uh, have all this money and technology and have a variety of THC containing uh, compounds and and be similar, too similar to a pharmaceutical company. Sure. I mean, you have to be a, a bit non-traditional and... and <laughs> we're and certainly I, that. We're... I imagine there's there's a, a sense of urgency as well that, again, it can take 10 years for a, a typical pharmaceutical to be developed. And I don't know if you have a shorter time frame, but certainly a lot of people out here do. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I have a much shorter timeline. And, and even with epidiolics and CBD, the timeline for that was really short. It was four to five years. Um, although preclinical studies started before that, um, you know, the first patient was actually dosed before Charlotte. Uh, with epidiolics, um, compassionate use. And I think that's kind of a, a untold story. But um, I think we can do things a lot smarter uh, broadly. Certainly certain markets like Canada and Australia have different, um, I would say, pathways or swim lanes for products that can be used uh, medicinally, uh, but don't necessarily require uh, FDA approval. So th- I think, you know, if you... You learn that a molecule is safe um, and uh, you get some positive data uh, permitted it's safe. I think the scrutiny of having to do, uh, you know, 500 to $800 million worth of work on something that's more or less already been done, um, I think is a little bit extensive. So it would be nice to have a regulatory pathway that both ensured safety, but shortened the time frame and ultimately the cost uh, for, for cannabinoid medicine. Are you hopeful that that pathway will emerge? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, uh, there, sometimes uh, in, in politics, there's there's not always uh, a robust sense of logic. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, it's difficult for me to speculate. I'm happy uh, to, to speak um, to to any sort of regulators or politicians that uh, are interested in in getting my thoughts on pathways, but right now I, I think it's a difficult situation. Um, the FDA is, I think, in a very difficult situation because ultimately their job is to ensure safety um, and for them to come out and say this is the safe dose be- to be used across everyone is difficult. Um, you know, because essentially they'll hang their hat on it. Um, 
but I think it can be done and it should be done. And I think actually the safety risks are more akin to what we mentioned earlier around, uh, you know, toxins and contaminants and mislabeled and those sorts of things. So I think we need to get there. Um, I don't know that we're going to get there through the FDA uh, confirming what that dose is. I think it's probably going to take some sort of political action to get there. Well, hopefully things can be expedited. I mean, you guys are doing a lot of great innovative work, and we know it has a lot of promise. You know, I look to Israel, who has definitely led the way on a lot of cannabinoid science, and I wish that things could happen faster over here, but uh, we do what we can. I think you guys are launching CBD in the U.S., including a line of Martha Stewart products. Yeah, that's what my commercial colleagues um, tell me. I know that... uh, Martha is an extremely detailed uh, lady, and she has um, traditionally very good products. And I know that there is a collaboration underway and uh, that she is heavily involved uh, with that collaboration and uh, certainly interested in the science and, you know, anything from Martha Stewart. um, If it is taste related, I'm sure it's going to taste great. So uh, that's... (laughs) As, as far as like the specifics of it, I don't know that that's uh, completely public. Um, uh, certainly, I think that she's um, she's going to make sure whatever she puts her name on is a good quality product. She'll mix it with the right fats, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It'll be bioavailable and delicious. Uh, so. Hunter, thanks for taking the time. Is there anything we haven't covered that we should at this point? I don't think so, Tom. I, I appreciate it. Um, I'm sure that I could probably ramble on for... Uh, many other hours, but um, I think some good key points, especially around dispelling myths and and risk and how consumers should go about looking for good quality products, um, we certainly covered that. Yeah, you gave us some great insight into what you guys are doing, and uh, it's very exciting. So we'll be keeping an eye out for Canopy Growth, and uh, thank you again for you didn't have to break quarantine. You did this from Nicaragua, so um. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. You've been listening to the Cannaboom Podcast with host Tom Stacy. If you like the show and want to know more, please check us out at Cannaboom with a K.com. And please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next week.